Turn, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of 1 John. Teresa and I were gone last week. We were up in Colorado visiting grandchild number one and grandchild number seven. Uh, Grandchild number seven is four weeks old? Six weeks old. Wow. I had not seen him before. Teresa went up there the day after he was born, but um, it was a good time. We brought grandchild number one home with us, so he rode in the car with us all day yesterday, and he likes to talk. <laughs> grandchild number one is four. He'll be going to kids' camp this week. So, we've been working our way through the book of First John. If you remember, I made a comment early on that one of the commentaries said that 1 John, it's hard to beat it into a pattern because he talks about something over here and then stops talking about it for a while and a chapter later, oh, here's something that contradicts what I just said over there, but it's okay. Well, today we're going to run into one of those things. If you remember chapter 1, verse 8 It said, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar. Why? Because we're all sinners. Now, a nice answer would be, well, he's talking about us before we accept Christ. Okay? If at some point in your life you do not acknowledge that you're a sinner, you're not going to acknowledge you need a Savior. Pretty simple, right? But I don't think he's talking only about that. I think he's talking about us for our entire life here on this planet. Because I don't know about you, but I kind of sin occasionally, (laughs) regularly, sometimes. Because that's why it says after that, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the only thing that can save us, right? Today's lesson's going to be a little different, though. It's going to tell us, if you keep sinning, you're not in Christ. And I'm going, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble. I want to back up just a little bit, not in the book, but in our understanding of salvation. We do this regularly, and we do it regularly because we get confused about it at times, right? We understand that we, apart from Christ, are lost. We are not saved. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, we receive salvation. Okay? Last week's or two weeks ago, the lesson before today's lesson was about abiding in Christ. When we abide in Christ, we receive salvation. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. What does that mean? Well, if you contributed this much to your salvation, I guarantee you, you would be standing up here bragging about how you did that much. 
And you would think you had done this much or this much. No, you don't contribute at all to your salvation. It is a work done by Jesus in your life. Now, how do we know that's happened? How do you know? We know, right? We understand that there are people who at some point in their life walked down the aisle in a Baptist church, I went to a Baptist church, who claimed to have accepted Jesus and then just ran amok. And we begin to think, okay, they had their salvation, but then they lost their salvation. Well, we understand that you can't lose that which you didn't earn. But it is possible to think that you are a believer. I was raised in the church. I went to church all the time. Therefore, I'm a believer. In the same way, I work in a garage. Therefore, I'm a car. No. (laughs) What we're going to talk about this week and next week are two evidences that you are, in fact, in Christ. The one for next week is the fun one, right? What is the evidence that we are in Christ? We love one another. That's next week's lesson. Today's lesson, though, is that one of the evidences that we are in Christ is that we are displaying the righteousness of Christ in our daily life. But I'm going to repeat it. Us displaying the righteousness of Christ is not what merits our salvation. It does not earn our salvation. It is an evidence that the salvation has occurred. Did we understand that? It is an evidence. Keep that in mind as we start today's lesson. We didn't quite make it through chapter 2, so we'll finish up with the last couple of verses, starting in verse, uh, I don't know, let's take uh, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. We talked about that in the last lesson. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We are to live our life connected to Christ, abiding in him, dwelling in him, living in him. Why? So that when he returns and he is going to return, we're not going to be ashamed or embarrassed. I don't know about you. When I was younger, living in my parents' house, if my dad walked into the room and I was doing something, shall we just say a little questionable, I'd quickly hide it and go, I didn't do anything. (laughs) Now my grandkids do that, right? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. We are embarrassed. But if I'm sitting in my room doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and my father walks into the room, it's, hey, look what I'm doing. The question is, 
He's talking to believers here, by the way. Okay, He is talking to believers, but he's telling the believers when Christ returns, are you going to go, oh, I should have been doing, but I wasn't. Is that what we're going to be doing when he returns? And the answer is to abide in him. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We need to understand what the word righteousness means. In its simplest form, it's right standing with God. God has created a, well, a moral universe. A universe in which there are things that conform to his will, and there are things that do not conform to his will. When we do that which conforms to his will, we are righteous. And when we do that which does not conform to his will, we are not demonstrating righteousness. Now, it is interesting because there actually is this bizarre, in my mind, philosophical argument about moral imperatives, the things that are right and the things that are wrong. And the question is that in the philosophical world is, does this list of things exist apart from God? Or is righteousness just whatever God chooses to do? So if God chooses to kill a billion people, then killing a billion people is a righteous thing to do. Uh, and they try to abstract this list of righteousness, this righteous things, apart from the character of God himself. In reality, righteousness is what God is. It isn't something outside of God that God is looking at and having to conform to. Nor is it some random list of things that he has given to us that we have to do. I mean, I've told you before, I had this bizarre idea when my kids were young that my kids had this idea that there was fun over there and they're over here and I'm in the middle telling them no. You can't do it. And that's the way people view the righteousness of God. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not lust. You shall not steal. Oh, shoot. But I wanted to do those things. But God knows that doing those things is not good for human flourishing. It isn't that he's keeping you from doing those things that will give you a fulfilled life. He is trying to direct you into what is best for your flourishing. So, God is righteous. Christ is righteous. We are in Christ. We are to be righteous. That's what we're going to talk about today. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, let me just, as an aside here, there is some discussion in the commentaries 
about this next several paragraphs who the he is. Because sometimes the he seems to be God the Father, and sometimes the he seems to be Jesus Christ, and the answer is going to be yes. Okay? In John's mind, he is so connected to the fact that Jesus is God that, well, he's going to talk about him. And he is going to be God the Father in some of these passages. And some of them are very clear, okay? But some of them, well, who's the righteous one? And the answer is yes. Remember, God the Father, the standard of righteousness. Jesus Christ fulfilling the will of the Father, which is righteousness for us. So, we are going to talk about what it means to be righteous. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you are truly practicing righteousness, that is an indicator that you have been born again. Wait a minute. Question. I have a question. Are you saying that unbelievers cannot do good things? Well, today is Father's Day, and you know what? There are unbelievers who are good fathers. Let's just say it, right? There are. There are unbelievers who give money to worthy causes. There are unbelievers who do lots of good deeds. But the question is, is that godly righteousness? And I think the answer is no. Well, what's the difference? When I do an act of righteousness, I am doing something for the glory of God. Not for my glory, but for the glory of God. And if I am doing that which in the earthly sense is a good thing, but I'm not doing it to bring glory to God, I'm doing it for the wrong motivation. And in the eyes of God, it is not a righteous deed. That which is righteous is that which is done for the glory of God. Let's keep going. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. <sighs> what does that have to do with righteousness? Well, the last sentence that I read is, is the understanding of righteousness. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, purifies himself. Purity of heart, cleansing yourself, is the description of righteousness. But what about all of this before that? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What does it mean 
to be a child of God. Um, I've told you this story, but it's been a long, long time. Teresa was in the um, grocery store many, many years ago with one of the children, and I don't know what started the conversation, but um, Teresa shared the gospel with our child in the grocery store. The child accepted, and Teresa said, you're now a child of God, to which the child turned to Teresa and says, does that mean you're an adult of God? (laughs) Go figure. A child with a perfect father. Let's just throw that in, right? Just to make sure we're okay. Why? Because as Ben says, there's good fathers in this earth and not so good fathers. Let's just say that. But a child with a perfect father wants to be like that father. And the father carries that child to be like the father. What are we supposed to do? We are called children of God. We are to be imitators of our heavenly father. That is why, I might add, Father's Day is a difficult day for a lot of people. Why? Because they had bad fathers. I tell young dads that their their presentation of fatherhood to their child is going to be the first image that the child has of God. Now, that's a scary thought. It's a terrifying thought. And as the child grows older, they begin to realize that their father is, well, a fallen human being like everybody else. But that is the image. That's why if you have a child who had a totally missing father, it is difficult for them to understand God as the true father. Now, it can be done, by the way. It can be done. But we are children of a loving, perfect, holy, righteous Father. And we are to be imitators of Him. In fact, what it says, this is a demonstration of the love that God has for us because he has brought us into this relationship of father-child. We are a child of the father. We are not a subject of the father. We are not a slave of the father. We are a child, and that is a demonstration of the father's love for us. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Wait a minute. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Who is the him? Probably Jesus Christ. Now, this becomes a fun discussion that we'll try to get over as quick as we can. (laughs) 
When Jesus died on the cross, he appeared after the resurrection to hundreds of people in a resurrected body. We too, at some point after death, will have a resurrected body. And I raise this because there's lots of discussion about what that resurrected body looks like. Uh, it will be perfect. It will be without blemish. But wait a minute. Jesus still had the marks of the cross. Why? Because I think those marks took, gave glory to the Father. Okay? So we will have a resurrected body. And I'm not sure, and I'm not going to speculate what that body looks like but it'll look probably better than what I have. Okay? You have that problem, right? As he has appeared, we will appear also. Now, what we need to make sure we don't believe, that doesn't mean we're going to be God. Okay? Let's just throw that out. If you are a good Mormon, you believe... Well, if you're a guy, you believe when you die, you will become a god. You know they're saying, right? As he, Jesus, uh, no, as God the Father, as he uh, is, we someday will be, and as we are, he once was. I got that backwards, but it's the same idea, okay? We will be gods. Guess what? We're not going to be a god. God is God, Jesus is God, Jesus took on human form, and when Jesus was resurrected, his human form was in a resurrected body. And we too will be in a resurrected body. All of this was to get to the verse I didn't want to talk about. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sitting also practice law, practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Can we just quit right now? I will not ask for a show of hands. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you have the false belief that you are a believer, but you keep sinning? Because if you were a true believer, you're not going to be sinning. Isn't that what that just said? Well, sort of. Let's back up. The paragraph that follows is going to be talking about those who practice righteousness and those who practice sinning. I kind of got a humor out of the word practice. I practice it a lot. Uh, but the observation is this. In the life of a believer, we are to be growing in our demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. In our life as a believer, we are to be growing 
in our demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. Tomorrow, you should be more righteous than you are today. And the next day, and the next day. But here's this horrible flaw in this argument that I just made. As we grow in righteousness, we become more aware of our sin and the less we feel that we're being righteous. I've told you before, right? I was a math major in college and I loved math. I really did. And when I was in high school, I thought I was pretty good at math. But you know what? The more math I learned, the more math I knew I didn't know. And the more I knew I didn't know, the less confidence I had that I was really good at math. Okay? If you wake up one morning and think, I'm pretty hot stuff. God probably really likes me because I'm really righteous. You're probably in the wrong place. Okay? We should be growing in our righteousness. Now, at this point, we have to back up. Are you going to be in trouble again? Remember what started the Reformation. Martin Luther was studying Romans. Romans chapter 1. There is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The question is, if I have to be righteous in order to be saved, yet I keep on sinning, how can I ever be saved? And it finally hit Martin Luther, and I might add, it had hit a lot of people before that, that that righteousness that is by faith from first to last is not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Theologians say it is imputed. It is given to you. It is by faith from first to last. We are declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the righteousness given to us. That's what it means to be saved. But working that out in our lives is the process of sanctification. We take that righteousness that he has given to us and we begin to demonstrate it over and over again in our daily life. But I don't want to do that. I like doing that other stuff. And John is going to tell us, if you keep practicing unconfessed, unrepentant sin, your father may not be God. Now, I know what question you really want me to answer. How much sin can I get away with? <laughs> That's what you really want to know, right? And my answer is obviously, if you're asking that question, you're in the wrong place. How much money can I steal from the bank before they care? 
Don't ask the question. How many laws can I break before the government will... I don't, don't ask that question. The true believer is asking, how can I demonstrate the righteousness of Christ? Knowing that tomorrow I'm going to get mad. And I'll repent. God will forgive me. And I will move on. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin is an indicator that you are not abiding in Christ. Let's back up and read this section again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, that means that their lifestyle is a lifestyle of sin, is practicing lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Believing that there is no law. There's actually a word for this. It's called antinomianism. Nomian is the law. Anti, there is no law. Let's look at two ends of the bad spectrum, okay? Remember, we're on the narrow road, right? Small as a gate, narrow as a road that leads to salvation. On one side is what we've talked about repeatedly, which is legalism. Legalism is the belief that I can work and earn merit with God. If I just do enough stuff, God will be pleased with me. We see this throughout the scripture. We see it in the lives of this small group of people known as the Pharisees. Trust me, legalism is alive and well. Remember my discussion just a moment ago that if you contributed this much, you'd be boasting about it? The Pharisee wants you to know how good they are. They are the legalist. But on the other curb of this narrow road is the idea that I'm saved by grace. Therefore, I have to, well, I don't have to pay any attention to any rules, laws, or regulations. And that is known as antinomianism. The belief that there is no law for the believer. And you know what? There is no law as a means of salvation. But when we become a believer, we are to follow the will of God. Now, we are terrified of legalism, and rightfully so. It's alive and well. And sometimes we almost accidentally start teaching this to make sure you're convinced I'm not teaching that. I had an elder in a church one time. I asked him a question. Could you make a list, even if there's only one thing on that list, of something that Christians ought or ought not do? And he said, no. Because if I do that, it's legalism. Now, what is that? 
That is a fear of being a legalist. And remember, legalism is alive and well. We can say that together, right? Legalism is alive and well. But John is telling us there's a curb and a cliff over there, and there's a curb and a cliff over there. If I wake up tomorrow and say, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, therefore I can shoot people at will because I'm going to heaven. I can steal at will because, hey, it's God's money anyway. I can live my life any way that I want. John, on the authority of the Holy Spirit, is telling you no. That is lawlessness. And we need to understand that. Now, here's the question I ask someone recently. In our modern day, which is the greatest danger, legalism or antinomianism? And the answer is, we have to be aware of both. But in our modern day of, well, relativistic morality, the idea that no one has the right to tell me what to do is sliding off of this edge over here. Now, don't become so concerned about antinomianism that you slip back into the legalist camp. And don't become so concerned about legalism that you fall off the cliff over here. That's what John is trying to demonstrate to us. If I say I have no sin, the truth of God is not in me and I am a liar because I'm going to sin. But if I keep on sinning as if it doesn't matter, I am practicing lawlessness and I am not abiding in Christ. Let's keep going. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. What did he do for us? He took away the penalty of our sin. That's the part that we talk about when we receive the righteousness of Christ. But he did more than that. He freed us from having to sin. What does that mean? I would contend that an unbeliever cannot not sin. Does that make sense? The scripture says they're slaves to sin. When we reach heaven in our glorified human bodies... We will not sin. But as a believer, between that end and this end, through the power that Jesus has given us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of abiding in Christ, we can not sin. Notice I didn't say you're not going to sin. What I said is that when you get into a temptation, you can, through the power of God, say no. You cannot, you can not sin. Whereas the believer cannot not sin. There's too many knots in that sentence. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay. You've got a father. And John is pretty much telling us this in black and white. You got a father. You are imitating your father God, or you are imitating your father, the devil. Those are the two choices that he gives us. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. The evidence that we have been born again is that we will practice righteousness. Now, practice makes perfect. It's an old saying, right? When we get to heaven, we will be perfect. We will not sin. But between now and then, we will sin, we will repent, we will be forgiven, and we will pursue Righteousness, if, in fact, you have been born again. Now, how much righteousness do you have to have? Well, you have to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to be saved. How much righteousness do you have to have? You're asking the wrong question again. You're asking the question I want to ask, right? Give me a scale. If I get above 80% Actual righteousness, I'm in. Okay, let's make it 75. Maybe God grades on a curve. Let's make it 71. No. Tomorrow, well, we better start with today. Today, you will choose to pursue righteousness or not. Now, if you're pursuing righteousness to earn and merit your salvation, you are a legalist. Welcome to the club. You're not going to be saved that way. But if you believe that you are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ, therefore I can get angry at anybody I want to, I can get mad, I can do whatever I want to, okay, then you are a antinomian. And don't go over there either. Do you see why it's a narrow path? Do you see why John begins over in chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, and then we get over to chapter 3, and it's it, but if you keep practicing sin, you're in trouble. Um, a man by the name of Bridges wrote a book, Respectable Sins, Acceptable sins? What was it? Respectable sins. That is that we as Christians have a list in our minds of sins that are really bad. Those are the ones that those people do. 
And then we have a list of sins that we just kind of got used to. Somewhere along the lines, we just kind of accepted the fact that, yeah, we're going to do those things. You know what that list is? Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And we talked about that whenever it was, three or four weeks ago. My contention is that in our desire to not fall off this cliff, we sometimes want to see how close to this cliff we can get. It is not my goal or my desire to make you anxious about your salvation. That's the Holy Spirit, okay? That's not my job. But John is telling us that in his love, God has allowed us to be called the children of God. And by allowing us to be called the children of God, we are to imitate the Father. The Father is righteous, we are to be righteous. And we don't even use that word very much today. I mean, it has strange connotations to us. But we are called to be imitators of Christ and imitators of the Father, and that imitation means that we are going to be righteous. And we're not going to make it to the end of today's lesson, but we'll pick it up next week, right there. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would practice righteousness, not through our own merit, not through our own strength, but through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of strength of Christ as we abide in him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.